Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here today. Greetings from Biola University. Known a long time about Lake Avenue Church, really dating probably back um, 17 or more years ago when I first met uh, Roland Hines, uh, as he was a board member out of the school where I was a part of back on the East Coast, and have heard and um, about that church ever since, and have had a chance to interact with a number of your um, parishioners and know at its heart that this church is a great commission church. This is a loving church. This is a compassionate church. This is a church that takes the veracity of God's word with extraordinary seriousness. Uh, this is a church that is truly a salt and light church. And I knew that from the other corner of the country back in New England where I moved from just about a year ago. And I also want to commend you on the selection of Greg Waybright as your pastor. Greg and I actually began this new sojourn in California about the same time last year, but I've known Greg from his work in the Chicago area at Trinity, um, his commitment as a scholar, his commitment to God's word, his commitment to a lover as a lover of people, and uh, one who is a great father and a husband who, who loves Christ and wants to become more like Jesus in his conduct and his character. And he is going to um, become part of this team increasingly in a, in a way that no doubt God is going to do some extraordinary things at Lake Avenue Church and is doing that now. It was about a year ago that my family and I pulled up stakes from New England and traveled across the country. And there was a great deal of excitement that went along with that. We were eager to see how God would use us in this new calling he had on his life. I was 45 years old and had a chance to be a part of this um, kind of forward-thinking university that was still steeped in the centrality of God's word and, and all of its conviction, yet looking at the, at the world and, and, and relevance and saying, how can we courageously move forward for the next generation to impact the world for Christ? Now, all that was well and good, but I cannot uh, help but say that as we thought about this move, there was some anxiety that uh, came along with it. It was a, uh, a time when we were uprooting from a little North Shore Boston rural community where there was not a single traffic light in our town. It's different here. <laughs> our kids played, you know, wiffle ball at the end of the cul-de-sac and... We lived in the same town where we worked, and uh, the only time there was traffic congestion is when the commuter rail went through town and the arm came down and two or three cars backed up for a minute or two, and then the arm went back up and things progressed as normal. That was kind of life for us. It was all our children knew. Last year when we were considering the move, our children were 14, 11, and 8, boy, girl, boy, and this was a, a big deal for us. And and there were some uncertainties that were facing us in this move. And any time you go through a transition in life, it might not just be geographical transition. It could be a vocational transition. There are uncertainties that you face. They're real, they're raw, and they are frightening. And we were facing those as well. Would we sell our house in a relatively flat market? Would our kids be able to make new friends and adjust to life in a different part of the country? Would I have what it takes to be an effective leader in this new role? You know, what would we do with 70 degree weather year round? Um, how would we handle our snow shovels? You know, when we came out here, would I like become an Angels fan and give up my allegiance to the Red Sox or 
even worse defect to the Dodgers. I didn't know what would happen when we came out here to Southern California in that 3,000 plus mile diagonal journey from sea to shining sea. Our life was filled with uncertainties. And we didn't know what the future would hold. And I'd like to argue with you this morning that that, in fact, is a very common, typical human reaction to changes in life. And I know you've been going through the Old Testament some and dealing with families of the Old Testament and and how they have some kind of relevance on your own life as seen through the lens of God's word. And that's where I want to take you this morning. And we're going to go to the kind of the Old Testament story of Isaac, chapter 26 of Genesis. It's the only chapter in God's word that deals exclusively with the life of Isaac, this son of Abraham, this father of Jacob. And these are real families. They're families like yours and mine, where there are tensions and dynamics and financial issues and and, and, and personality conflicts and generational issues that have to be dealt with between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. There are all kinds of raw, real-life stuff that they're dealing with. And I want to argue with you this morning that, in fact, that what's happening here in the life of Isaac is a very clear reminder for us, for you, for me, that life is a journey and life is intense. And that's I-N-T-E-N-T-S, right? We live our life in tents. And we pitch our tent for a season and then God calls us to pull up stakes and to pitch our tent in a new place. And we have to learn how we deal with those transitions in life because with those transitions come uncertainties. And the uncertainties are very real before us as they were for Isaac. And as you look at chapter 26, and I'm going to read a passage, a passage of chapter 26, and then I'm going to take you to Hebrews chapter 11 as well this morning. So would you join me in the reading of God's word? I want to do what Ezra had done in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to stand together and read God's word. Chapter 26, it begins, Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. And when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She's really your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Verse 12, Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. 
So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father, Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. And then Abimelech said to Isaac, you move away from us. You've become too powerful. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Verse 23, from there he went to Beersheba. And that night the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And Isaac built an altar there and he called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent. And there his servants dug a well. Verse 32 says that day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we've found water. And Isaac called it Sheba. And to this day. The name of the town has been Beersheba. Turning to the New Testament, chapter 11 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land, and like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents. Life is intense. As did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Lord, this is your word. Make it today a lamp unto our feet. Make it a light unto our path. May we find that we are camping in your word today. And may the words coming forth from your truth and may the power of your Holy Spirit dwell richly with us this morning. And may we even know that you have pitched your tent among us today. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this is how the chapter begins. There's a famine in the land. It's not really an upbeat way for a chapter to begin, whether it's chapter 26 of Genesis or your chapter or my chapter. When the words begin, there's a famine in the land. And uh, I don't know if you've been there. If you haven't, you will be. Or maybe you are. Or maybe you have been. But we've all been at that point in life where we can say there's a famine in the land. And maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's a vocational decision that we're making. Maybe it's something to do with the children that we're raising where we feel like things aren't really going right and we don't know what to do because there are uncertainties before us. Maybe there's a famine in our marriage. Maybe you're just bored and life has been the same drag for a really long time and you feel like, you know what, there's a famine in the land. Or maybe it's a spiritual dimension for you where you feel that your soul is really arid, it's parched, it's, it's thirsty land, and you feel like it's been a long time since you've been doused with any water on your soul, and you saying, in my own walk with Christ, there's a famine in the land. Well, this is what's happening in Isaac's life in a very real way, where this head of the household understands the context that he's living in, realizing that there's a famine in the land. And I want to walk with you how Isaac walked himself through that famine and how he learned along the way as we proceed through Genesis chapter 26. 
because the passage that begins with a famine in the land means that Isaac was filled with uncertainties. He didn't know how he was going to care for his cattle. He didn't know how he was going to care for his family and his servants. He didn't know what to do with the enemy around him. And so his first response to there's a famine in the land is that he wants out of there. How do we know he wants to get out of there? Because in verse 2, God says, Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. Well, Isaac never said he was going to go down to Egypt. We have to understand God, the God who understands as a father, sees his son there planning to go down to Egypt. It's as if I was saying to my son, Sam, who's nine years old, Sam, don't jump on the couch. He said, Dad, I wasn't jumping on the couch. I said, no, but you were about to jump on the couch. I can just tell I'm your dad. Well, this is what's happening with God saying to Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. Well, why would Isaac go down to Egypt? Well, he wanted to go down to Egypt because there's this lush delta region down there, right? There's water. There's fertile soil. He can be away from the enemy. He can take care of his family. He can water his livestock. He can grow his crops. He can be okay. Well, where in the world did he get that idea? He got it from his father. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. What Isaac was doing was mimicking what his father had done. He had one of those little wristbands on WWDD. What would dad do in this kind of uncertain situation? Well, dad would go down to Egypt. That's what he would do. So the first gut response that I'm going to make is without thinking about it, without reflecting on it in terms of what God might want me to do, I'm going to do what my father did. My wife, Paula, and I were having not long ago one of those relational recalibration moments. You ever have one of those? You know, just trying to get yourself through this little deal. And she made some kind of comment after something I had done. She said, Barry, why did you do that? I said, I don't know. That's what my father did. You know, my first response was, you know, I just kind of do in a certain situation. I mimic what my father had done. She said, Barry, you know, I love your dad. He's a great guy. And, you know, he loved me and it was a wonderful relationship you had with him. But, you know, I don't think that was the right thing to do. And sometimes we default to mimicking what others might do in times of uncertainty rather than reflecting on what God might have us do. So Isaac listens to the voice of God in verse 2, and then in verse 6 we see that Isaac stayed. He stayed put. He didn't go anywhere. That's the good news. The bad news is that there's a verse 7. In verse 7 we see that Abimelech uh, is, is there and Isaac is afraid for his own life. And so he turns to Rebecca and he says, you know what? You're, let's pretend you're my sister and not my wife. You know, honey, you're, you're like a sister to me. Those, those aren't really good words of spousal affirmation, by the way. Just a little marginal note for you to take home along the way. But he resorts and says, you know what? I'm afraid for my own life, so I'm going to lie about my wife. And this is exactly what he's doing and 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 he's doing this because he's facing these uncertainties before him well why did he lie about his wife and say that she was like a sister to him well that's what his dad did abraham did the very same thing in chapter 12 and chapter 20 lying about sarah in order to protect his own life so here we have the two initial responses by isaac in the face of uncertainties the first thing he does is he wants to flee, and God says, stay, and he stays. The second thing he does, he starts spinning a tail, manipulating the truth, trying to make himself look like somebody that he really isn't in order to protect his own skin. Because it says in verse 9 that when the king approached him, he said, I did that, I lied about my wife, saying she was my sister, 
because I was afraid for my own life and what you might do to me if you really found out. You know, every lie at its core is really a lack of trust in God because we're manipulating the situation. We're spinning a story to make ourselves look more prominent, more successful, different than we really are. And that is an affront to God. And Isaac did this because he thought he might lose his life on account of her, Rebecca. So life is uncertain. And this father, this husband, tries to choreograph all of these situations, manipulate them in a certain way in order to protect himself in the face of uncertainty. Someone that once said the eight eight most dangerous words in the English language are, I've got to get control of my life. This frantic rush to control our situation, which is so counter to God's word, the paradox of the gospel is that you gain control by relinquishing control. And Isaac didn't get this yet. Because if he had really listened to what God said in verse 3, where the Lord said, I will be with you and I will bless you, he wouldn't have fallen back to that first default mechanism of trying to do what somebody else did in the face of uncertainty. So what is God's antidote to the uncertainty that we face in life? Well, as irrational and as counterintuitive as this may sound, God's antidote to our uncertainty is not certainty. In other words, I think Isaac would have liked it if when he faced the famine in the land, the next day God said, you know what? Here comes the rain. The next day God says, I'm going to obliterate the enemy. The next day God says, I'm going to fill your silos filled with grain. Those are answers of certainty that I think Isaac was thinking about as he faced the uncertainty of his life when there was a famine in his land. But that's not how God responded to the uncertainties that Isaac faced. God responded by saying these simple words in verse 3, Isaac, I will be with you. I will bless you. And I'm going to bless your descendants and all nations on earth are going to be blessed through you. And it has to do with that obedience that your father Abraham understood where he obeyed and God credited that to him as righteousness. That's how you need to live in the face of uncertainties. So the antidote to uncertainty is not certainty. In God's economy, the antidote to uncertainty is confidence. And there is a world of difference between certainty and confidence. Certainty means I understand and know what's going to happen tomorrow. Confidence means I trust that my tomorrow is going to be okay because I'm living with faith. Con, Latin for with, fides, Latin for faith, with faith, confidence. We live right by faith and not by sight. The antidote to the uncertainties before us is to live a life of confidence. That's what Isaac should have gotten right away when there was a famine in the land, when God said, I promise I'm going to be with you and I'm going to, be, I'm going to bless you. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, right? Be confident, not certain. 
Be confident. Be con with Fides faith. Live by faith of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That is where we stake our lives in the face of uncertainties. Not by looking for certainty, but by living with confidence. Con with Fides faith. We live by faith and not by sight. And we've got to get that in the face of uncertainties, that he who began a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's why I brought you to that passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, where the great story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it said they set out on this pilgrimage as strangers, as wanderers in this foreign land. And the words of Genesis, I mean, of Hebrews chapter 11 say specifically, they set out, quote, not knowing where they are going. And there's a time in life where we can say, you know what, I don't know where I'm going. And that's the uncertainties before us. And then that passage says they went on to live in tents, going from place to place. And then that passage in Hebrews ends by saying, but they knew what they were looking for. For they were looking for a city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And I want to tell you, my friends at Lake Avenue Church, that at times we might say, I don't know where I'm going. And God says, that's all right, so long as you know what you're looking for. And you have your eyes fixed on that city, that city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is how we approach life. In the midst of the uncertainties before us, we live by faith and not by sight. We cling on to the words of Genesis chapter 26, verse 3. I will be with you. I will bless you. And those words of Paul in Philippians 1, 6, be confident of this one thing that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So life is intense and life's a journey. And we go through these different seasons of life and these legs in the journey and they're health related, they're financially related, they're family related, they're spiritually related, and we don't know what's going to happen next. It was a year ago that uh, our family and I were putting our house on the market and getting ready to make the big move from New England, from the Boston area out here to Southern California. And I thought it would be a great time for us to just like kind of reflect on that cross-country journey in the car. Well, Paula, my wife, she was trying to settle some things back at home in the sale of the house, and we had gotten rid of our van, and we had the car left, and she said, you know what, it's going to be a little tight in the car. Maybe I'll stay here, and I'll fly out with the kids. Well, I didn't want to drive cross-country by myself, so I thought I might be able to lure one of our children to go with me. And uh, I was successful in my first try with our son, Anders. Anders was 14 last summer, and I knew the one thing that would get him to go on this trip with me from coast to coast was baseball. He loves baseball. And I said, Anders, tell you what I'm going to do. If you come cross-country with me, this father-son road trip coast to coast to this new job in California, we're going to go to baseball games. He said, works for me. And I said, okay, this was my first problem. I said, Anders, here's my credit card. He said, just, just get online and get tickets. I'll let you figure out the, the map that we're going to take. If it's, you know, through Cleveland, Chicago, you know, Denver, we're going to go north. We're going to go to the middle of the country through, you know, Pittsburgh and Kansas City. Or we're going to go to the southern part of the country. You figure out which way we're going to go based on home games. 
So he did the research. He did the work. I was nearby. He bought the tickets and we mapped out our course. And the only way we could follow home games was to go down the eastern seaboard and across the bottom of the country. So this was the deal. Andrew said, Dad, we're going to do baseball. I said, okay, that's your part of the deal that I'm going to work with you. My part of the deal is we're going to go coast to coast and we're going to only eat at local restaurants. No franchise, no chains, no fast food places. We're going to see America through these greasy spoon diners and little neighborhood cafes and these little out-of-the-way holes in the wall. And I said, no chain restaurants. Andrew said, okay, but that's not what we're going to do with hotels. Only chain hotels. (laughs) So we did this little negotiating back and forth in order to kind of sign the contract. And then we set out the end of July last year, got in the car, and began this eight day pilgrimage from Boston to Los Angeles. And we'd stop in these little places and strike up a conversation with the locals. I say, this is my son, Andrews and me. We're on this cross country road trip together. Father, son, coast to coast. We've got a new job in California. And we'd tell our story. I say we, it was actually me. He was just indulging me, listening, rolling his eyes at times while I told the story. And so we went from Boston through New York down to Washington to see the Nationals, went to see the Charlotte Knights, a minor league team, got to Atlanta, Turner Stadium, Oil, uh, the Houston Astros were in town and went up to the, to the gate and Andrews carries all these tickets in a little envelope and he pulled out the tickets, he's tried to stay really organized with this and they scanned the tickets there at the gate and made this funny beeping sound. Man at the gate said, oh, these are for last night's game. And Andrews, you could just see he was crestfallen. And he said, Dad, I'm sorry, I, I messed up. I bought tickets for the wrong night's game. And I looked, and sure enough, it had. And I went up to that ticket window. I said, Sir, this is my son Anders and me. We're on this cross-country road trip together. We're going coast to coast. I got a new job in California. We got tickets for the wrong night's game. And we were really hoping to see the, you know, the Braves play. And the man said, I don't know if I can do anything. So he went to the back room, came out a few minutes later. He had two tickets for us for behind home plate to watch that game being played. And my son said, why are we going to California? Let's live in Atlanta. You know, it's great here. I said, we can't, Anders. We're on this cross-country road trip together. Father and son got a new job in California. We're on our way. So we saw the game that night, and the next day we got up early. We're driving out and uh, headed right into to Alabama and uh, saw an exit coming up for Tuscaloosa. I turned to my son, Anders, big sports fan. I said, Anders, you ever hear Bear Bryant? legendary football coach of University of Alabama, you know, Crimson Tide. He said, Dad, I never heard of him. I said, you know what? We're going to find out about him. Let's get off this exit. So we pulled off that exit, drove into the town there, found this little cafe called the Bama Jamma Cafe, right? Right in the shadow of the University of Alabama Stadium. So we went in there, ordered some breakfast, this kind of grits and sausage and biscuits and gravy kind of stuff, high cholesterol fatty breakfast, and, and we ate it. We started talking to the lady in the booth next to us. Her name was Ruby said, Ruby's my son, Anders, and me were on this cross-country road trip together, father, son, going to California, got a new job out there. And she said, well, thank you for stopping in Tuscaloosa. She said, I was born and raised here in Tuscaloosa, went to the University of Alabama, worked at the university until I retired, and I've been retired here ever since. And if you look across the street, and we did, there's a cemetery. She said, I've got my burial plot there. My life has been in Tuscaloosa, and thanks for caring enough about our little community to stop here. Well, that was an enjoyable time. We walked around the campus for about an hour and we were walking back to our car and there was a student walking up the sidewalk. There weren't a whole lot of students there in the early part of August. He had the New York Times tucked under his arm and he stopped us and he said, hi, my name's Patton. He said, were you the two guys in the cafe about an hour ago? I said, yeah, we were. He said, father, son, road trip, California, new job. (laughs) 
said, that was us. He said, well, I was eavesdropping on your conversation you were having with that lady. And he said, I was really impressed by what you had to say. So I got on the phone and I talked to my father. I said, hey, Daddy, maybe one of these days you and I can go on that kind of cross-country trip together. And I think by then my son was beginning to realize that we were on a journey. And this was a special time that we were having together. So he was beginning to catch on that this was a coast-to-coast thing. And we're, we're never going to do something like this again. And so we kept on driving. We were driving through Wichita Falls, Texas a couple of days later. And there's not a whole lot there, by the way. Um, <laughs> But there was a state trooper pulling somebody over in Wichita Falls, and I realized it was me. (laughs) And he asked for, he said, license and registration. So I I gave it to him, and he said, you're going at a pretty fast clip there. I said, my son Andrews, we're on a cross-country road trip together. (laughs) We're going to California, got a new job out there. So he said, oh, wow, that's a great story. Here's a warning, didn't give us a ticket, told us to slow down, and next time we go through Wichita Falls, don't drive so fast. We haven't since then, and... um, so we kept on going. It was a couple of days later. We had gone and stopped to see the Albuquerque Isotopes play baseball, went to Flagstaff, Arizona, and then we were driving from Arizona into California, crossing the Colorado River. Now, we had taken pictures along the way of the Welcome To signs, right? Welcome to Louisiana, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona. And here it says, Welcome to California. And so took a picture of that as we went across the river. And there we were in a town, I think it's called Needles. And it said, welcome to California. And um, took the picture. And probably a minute later, I turned to say something to Anders. And tears had just kind of streamed down his face. I said, what's wrong? He said, you turn around, you take me back home. And I said, we can't on this road trip, you know, coast to coast, father, son, new job. He said, Dad, I don't get this whole thing about God's call on our life, but you just uprooted me from my friends, from everything I know, from our school, from this community to this place that I know nothing about. And that sign said, welcome to California. I'm looking around. I don't feel so welcome. And he cried. I started to cry. We turned the windshield wipers on. You know, we (laughs) kept driving. Thankfully, the Red Sox were in Anaheim that night, and we had tickets to the game. And so that helped a little bit along the way. But it was one of those moments that I'll never forget when you're, pulling up your stakes and you're pitching your tent in a new place and you cross that river and the sign says welcome you don't feel very welcome and you don't know what to do and you kind of want to turn around and go back where life is easier or safer or more familiar or more comfortable but God's call on your life on my life is to take us from place to place from season to season through mountaintop experiences and through valleys assuring us with the words I will be with you And I will bless you. And you need to be confident. Live by faith of this one thing that he who began a good work in you and he who began a good work in me, he's going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the journey. That's where we find that life is indeed intense. And when you get to verse 22 of chapter 26 of Genesis, you see that Isaac has been having this terrible time. There's a famine in the land. He's been oppressed by Abimelech, the enemy. He's trying to dig these wells to get water, and the enemy comes and he's pouring these, this dirt back into these wells, packing them full again. And he doesn't know what to do, but he keeps on persevering, and he's no longer trying to mimic the ways of his father. As a matter of fact, he gets to a well, and he digs up that well, and the water comes forth of that well. And, and, and he says in verse 20, um, 22, he says, Now... The Lord has given us room, and we're going to flourish in the land. 
These aren't words that Isaac was sharing in the beginning of the chapter. But he's learned along the way to trust in God. And when you get to verse 24, you see that God reminds him again, echoing that same promise that he had made earlier. Isaac, I will be with you. I'm going to bless you. Everything's going to be okay. Just trust in me when that famine comes. And Isaac, little by little through the course of chapter 26, is learning to trust in God. And now he comes to this place that he calls Rehoboth. Now the Lord has given me space and given me room. I was speaking two years ago or a year ago, whenever it was, at a father-son cookout in Barrington, Rhode Island. And I was talking to one guy there, a guy actually named Jay, who used to go to Lake Ave Church here in Pasadena. And he was saying, no, we've had some tough times in life, but the Lord has been faithful to us time and time again. I said, hey, Jay, where do you live? He said, I live in this little town outside of Providence called Rehoboth. I thought, you know, that's it. The Lord has given us space and room. And right there in the providence of God, Isaac is learning this lesson that it's the Lord that has given him space. It's the Lord that gets the credit for what's happening. And so when he goes forward and you get to verse 25, it says, so Isaac pitches his tent. Life is intense, right? He pitches his tent. And what does he do besides it, beside his tent? Builds an altar. The one thing that God asks you to do is whatever new place that you're in, where he calls you to pitch a tent, there he also calls you to build an altar. Happens time and time again in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis 13 with Abraham, in Genesis 26 here with Isaac, in Genesis 33 with Jacob, where they pitched their tent, they built an altar. They consecrated that chapter in their life with the uncertainties before them to the provisions and the faithfulness of God. So life is intense. And we go from place to place, from season to season, these legs along the journey that God calls us to with uncertainties before us. And God says, wherever I tell you to pitch your tent, there you also build an altar. A little over a year ago, we were in the final stage of the candidacy process at Biola and it was um, filled with excitement about this possible new calling on our life to come out here and live in Southern California and be part of what God has been doing at this university now for a hundred years that's been faithful to God's word but there's also those moments of human apprehension where you wonder what the next chapter is going to be looking like and if you're able to actually do it and there are four solid days of interviews that we had that began on the the the, the 9th of May and ended on the uh, 11th or so of May. And during that period of time, we were uh, meeting with group after group of Biola, and Paul and I were kind of there in the crucible of the decision-making process, and no stones were being left unturned. And there are some moments when I can I honestly say I was tired, and I wasn't sure if this is really what we should be doing. Those moments of doubt came. And I had one particular intense, long session interviewed at Sutherland Hall at Biola University. I had a full crowd there and question after question about me and my background was being asked. And, and uh, at the end of the session, I was fatigued and, and, and weary. And a student comes up to me. And I love the fact that it was a student. He comes up to me and he, and he hands me a, a note and then walks away. And I couldn't tell you today what that student looked like. 
But I received a lot of notes, letters, emails, cards in this last year. But there's only two or three that I keep in my Bible, and this is one of them. And this is what that student wrote to me on the back of that questionnaire form. He said this, Dr. and Mrs. Corey, thousands have been praying for you. None have taken this lightly. Welcome here. Please live simply that we may have an example to follow. Give us Jesus. Keep us urgent. Ask for patience, especially within your first two years here. Don't let us stay inside the bubble, but take us outside for the kingdom of God. Eat in the cafeteria often. (laughs) Know your students. Be hospitable. Love us dearly. Love one another before us. Love him so much more. Fiercely guard what we stand for. Do not glorify Biola. We do not need statues or expensive pretty things. We want to be wise, practical, and give it all to our Lord. Remember, beauty for ashes and be encouraged. That note made a difference in our life. I thought if these are the kinds of students that we're coming to serve alongside, then this is the place that we're ready to pitch our tent. And where we pitch our tent, we also build an altar. And these have become some of our family's stones on that altar where God has called us to pitch our tent. So Genesis chapter 26 is about how to go through life from place to place amidst the uncertainties before us in a way that God wants us to go through life. And you've got to love the fact that when you get to verse 32, Genesis 26, the servants say to Isaac, Isaac, we've found water. How does chapter 26 begin? It begins with the words, there's a famine in the land. How does it end? It ends with the words, we've found water. And if you look in your Bible, there's probably an exclamation point after that. There's no exclamation point after there's a famine in the land. And you cannot help but think that in the famine of your own land and the uncertainties before you, you're going to be able to abound in the confidence, the with faith of living with God that he who began a good work in you, I'm telling you, my friends, he is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, so long as you live with confidence and not with certainty. And you cannot help but read this passage in Genesis 26 and point your eyes fast forwarding to the words that Jesus shared in John chapter 4 where that spiritually thirsty woman was standing beside the well and he said to her, Ma'am, I'm going to give you some water, and water not just for today, but water for every day, for the water that comes forth from my well is living water. It's water that's never going to run dry. And you can count on this not only for this life, but for all of eternity, so long as you live by faith. That's what Isaiah said when he said, I'm going to pour water on him who is thirsty, and I will pour floods upon the dry ground. If there's a famine in your land, know that there's water for you that flows and bubbles eternally from the wellspring of the loving heart of God the Father who says, I will bless you. I will keep you. I will never leave you. So you can be confident of this one thing that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the biblical way 
of facing the uncertainties in your life. So, Lord, we trust you when it's so easy to default to doing things our own way, when it's so easy to mimic what others have done in the face of uncertainties. Lord, Lord, point our hearts toward you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and you scorned its shame. And now you sit down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and you intercede on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to live in the assurance of your promise, your promises that are yea and amen, your promises that never fail, so that we too can fix our eyes on that city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Amen.